has and uh, isn't that prayer that Paul prayed appropriate for almost every Sunday really do you want to be rich it was interesting to discuss that question at staff meeting this week in regard to our fellow Australians I think someone said Aussies don't want to be rich because we already know there's no chance we'll ever have lots of money like Andrew Forrest or Gina Reinhart with their iron ore billions let alone your Elon Musk's or Zuckerberg's overseas But of course the obvious point is that Australia is well inside the top 25 richest nations of the world per head of population and those 25 countries control 80% of the world's wealth. Conclusion, most Aussies are already rich. The obsession with real estate and the share market, the way we upgrade our cars and devices, that should tell you it maybe even our daily coffee habits. But of course, it's a comparative measure. Now it feels so awkward to talk about being rich and so maybe the real question is, do you want more than you have now? Do you feel like you need more than you have now? I suspect we Christians don't think we're greedy because we live less extravagantly than our neighbours. Our lifestyle isn't quite as flash. But Paul's solution is quite different. It's not a bit more self-restraint. It's to have an entirely different investment goal. It's to make contentment in Christ your big investment goal in life. And the first step to true contentment is to hang on to Jesus' words. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they're conceited and understand nothing. Now we don't know the detail of what they denied, but the problem was that the false teachers in Ephesus where Timothy ministered did not stick with the gospel of Jesus. Literally, They did not teach the healthy words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that actually refers to the teachings of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Historians know that the words and deeds of Jesus were being retained in oral tradition and written down at this time by gospel writers like Luke. So Luke 10 and verse 7 quotes the exact same words from Jesus that Paul here quoted in chapter 5 verse 18 and Paul is saying now hang on to Jesus words it's trendy in the divinity departments of universities but friends you can't pit Jesus against Paul and you can't love Jesus without loving his words his teaching can be very challenging But those words of Jesus are your spiritual health. Now in addition there, verse 3 literally says to retain the teaching that accords with godliness. It's referring to gospel doctrine. The gospel summaries that the apostles preached. Uh, You recall my sermon on 1 Timothy 3.16 perhaps. The mystery or secret of godliness. That key word in this letter. The secret of Christian religion is the gospel. 
That's what 3.16 poetically recorded the real resurrection of the crucified Christ and his ascension to rule from heaven, taking care of eternity, his resurrection is our life and health eternal. Now we don't know if the false teachers denied what Jesus had said and done for us or just sidelined those great truths by spotlighting other debates. But the result in verses 4 and 5 was awful. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife and malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think godliness is a means to financial gain. Philip Jensen said those words could describe social media. Pig-headed strife and abuse, slander and lies and greed and envy and it's such a far cry from what Jesus taught and his example. But that sickness is exactly what happens when you take the focus off sound biblical teaching. Notice the particular twist here, it's the prosperity gospel. Thinking that Christian godliness is a way of getting ahead. Now, there's a half-truth here. Becoming a Christian can change your life for the better. So, for example, wherever the gospel goes around the world, rates of literacy have risen because Christianity is a religion of the word and giving people an incentive to learn to read does help people. But the prosperity gospel promises that God wants to bless us now with health and wealth. If only you have enough faith... Oh, and if you give generously to the prosperity preacher teaching you the spiritual techniques. As if reading the Gospels could ever make you think that. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. At his birth, he was laid in an animal's food trough. At his death, all he owned were the clothes on his back and the soldiers stole them. There's not just tele-evangelists. You know, mainline ministers in viable churches like me are pretty well paid, but you know, it's harder to fill those churches where they can't pay a pastor full-time. Well, the allowances are low and then the temptation, if a pastor does go, is to have to take on extra work on the side, focus on that. Maybe chasing funerals for the fees that go with them. And of course some church members can see belonging to a church uh, being seen to contribute there. Well, it's a useful way of signalling respectability and maybe making connections for business. Well, friends, jumping to the end of the passage, my second point is that money love is destructive. Look at verses 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We took Maisie, our Grudel, to the farm last holidays and such a good growing season means she got a stack of grass seeds stuck in her furry paws. 
and those seeds are little spears really and some pierced her skin unknown to us and worked up inside her legs creating swelling and limping and infection and costing us a stack in vet fees. Money love can pierce you with many griefs. Now we notice Paul doesn't say the love of money is the only root of evil, it's uproot. There can be other roads to disaster, unbridled sexual desire or power hungriness and so on, but money love is one big way people get snagged in sin. Again, Paul doesn't criticise people who are well off. It's not the possession, but the passion for money that's a problem. And that, of course, can apply when you have very little. But comfortable Aussies must not rush to get yourself off the hook here. What about those rounds of renovations and electronic upgrades? Mortgages that force both partners to work full time often, where we accept being time poor, think on that phrase, as the price we pay as we agonise over pay rises and promotions. We're the worst gamblers in the world. It's not only just for fun, is it? Economics reporting has overtaken sports reporting, I reckon, in size in our news bulletins in the last 20 years. Shares and real estate and super. Alan Kohler is our guru. The desire to be a bit better off is like opening the floodgates, says Paul. Plunge. It's like a tiny grass seed that can pierce you with many griefs. Money love can see a sound night's sleep slip away, make your health fail. Kids start to presume on you or rebel. Marriages unravel, desires turn into addictions, jobs disappear, markets drop, disease hits personally or globally and finances head south and discontent swells. And worst of all, it can destroy your relationship with God or his people. In fact, the words for ruin and destruction, used in verse 9, were often used in the Gospels by Jesus to describe hell and eternal judgment. For people, he said, were rich towards themselves, but not rich towards God. Or perhaps a poor neighbour. And so I don't think the solution is just to love money a little less than others. That just means the thorns work their way up your limbs a little more slowly. Now, as I said, Paul's solution is quite different, an entirely different goal. It's to make contentment the goal, by which I mean you invest in contentment in Christ. Look at those key middle verses, beginning with verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying you've hit the real jackpot when you find contentment. Because verse 7 points out that wanting more stuff is pointless. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. 
quote that every time I take a funeral. Nappies have no pockets and neither do burial shrouds. So all the results of wanting to get richer, all that stuff is temporary. As Australia's greatest living songwriter, Paul Kelly, that's if you discount Colin Buchanan, as he sang, you can't take it with you, though you might pile it up high. It's Old Testament wisdom. Remember Job, our series when COVID hit? Job 1.21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll depart. But he adds, the Lord gave and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, death is the great leveller. When asked to solve a dispute over a will, Jesus said, Luke 12 verse 15, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And then he tells the story of the bloke who builds bigger barns and has a heart attack. Here's the alternative in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And so Paul defines contentment in context here is having your basic needs met. The clothing word is actually covering and so probably includes shelter as well. But we're talking basic necessities, not Wagyu beef or designer shoes or a bedroom for every child individually as my father's generation understood. You might want the latter, not wrong to have them. But just get this clear, Having them won't make you content. Professor Bill Mounts, in his commentary on this verse, puts it so simply, this is a powerful verse, especially to an affluent church, and it's often ignored. Friends, Paul says to be clear on your needs, not your wants. And here is where I'm sure Paul wants us to come back to the healthy words of Jesus Christ. An extended quote from Jesus in Luke, that chapter 12, with the wills dispute and the barns. From verse 22, he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you you of little faith? And do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. 
For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Familiar words to almost everyone here. So let me simply just ask you this question. Is Jesus trustworthy? Friends, he gave up his own life for you on the cross, dying for your sins. Can't you bank on him when he says this? Well, in that light, I've asked Stacey to share a few personal practical reflections on contentment flowing from here. I wonder how you feel when you hear this. Do you feel challenged, uncomfortable, or do you feel like you're doing pretty well and are pretty content most of the time? I think it's easy when we have plenty, which many or most of us do, to feel like we're good at being content. But often we don't have to scratch much uh, to find areas where we struggle with contentment if we're honest. I think it can be a problem in all aspects of our lives, our life circumstances, how our families operate or don't operate, the job we have or don't have, the friends we have or don't have, our homes, our health, how much pain we're in, our relationships, our fertility, our children, even our walk with Christ. But the focus here is especially on material things, And in the first part of the passage, also on our position, I think, and relationships. And both of these things uh, present challenges to our contentment. I can think I'm doing okay, but what about when someone gets a recognition or promotion I think I should have got, or is given an opportunity I would like? Where am I looking for my own glory rather than God's? And what about material things? Where are the areas where my love for money comes to the surface? There's so much that I think that I need, but really I don't. What are the problem areas for you? Is it the junk mail in your letterbox? The Black Friday sale emails in your inbox? The sale at your favourite shop? Scrolling, scrolling on social media that keeps putting things in front of you for you to want. Is it food that you don't really need or a constant chasing of comfort and security? And this passage is not just about chasing contentment for the sake of it. It's not a goal in itself. Uh, It's not a Bible version of Marie Kondo. It's godliness with contentment. Once again, it's our attitude to God and our hearts that count. Do I accept what he gives with thankfulness or long for more? I'm very aware that many aspects of my life are pretty easy and I'm thankful to God for that, but that doesn't mean that there's no struggle in my heart. Uh, With my Bible study group, we've just finished studying Habakkuk. I wonder if we can say like he does, though I have nothing, that's a paraphrase, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour, the Sovereign Lord is my strength. Am I really satisfied in him?
Back in 1648, the Puritan pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, published a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I've seen it recommended several times recently and this week's passage got me dipping into it and now I want to read more. It's interesting that his title specifies Christian commitment, uh, Christian contentment because the idea of contentment was also found in the ancient Greek secular literature. It's not just Buddhists or as Stacey said, Marie Kondo, who tells us to sit loose to material possessions. But the ancient Stoics did too. But for all of those, it tends to mean self-sufficiency. For Paul, it means Christ-sufficiency. Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's the key. Sound words indeed. So here are a couple of quotes from Burroughs. Indeed, our afflictions may be heavy and we cry out. Oh, we cannot bear them. We cannot bear such an affliction. Though you cannot tell how to bear it with your own strength, yet how can you tell what you'll do with the strength of Jesus Christ? You say you cannot bear it. So you think that Christ could not bear it? But if Christ could bear it, why may not you come to bear it? You will say, can I have the strength of Christ? Yes, it is made over to you by faith. The scripture says that the Lord is our strength. God himself is our strength and Christ is our strength. There are many scriptures to that effect, says Burroughs, that Christ's strength is yours, made over to you so that you may be able to bear whatever lies upon you just like Habakkuk. And this, my brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you do not have enough of them. The reason is that they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Gotta really think that one over again, don't you? The God who created it all is worth so much more than all He created. We Christians, we are not Stoics toughing it out in our own strength, but people in love with Christ and all He's promised, far more than the fleeting pleasures money can buy.